says, but concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. And Father, we just humbly pause as we continue now to worship by submitting our hearts, our minds, our soul, our spirit to the authority and the truth of your word that we might hear your voice speaking to us, Lord, the truth to take away any error or confusion and Lord, that your word would be like that double-edged sword that would divide even between soul and spirit that, Lord, you would speak to us what it is that we need to hear as an individual and as a collective group of people, that you would speak to our hearts. We ask now that you would prepare us accordingly, whatever that means for each one of us in this room this morning. And as always, that we wouldn't hear wise or persuasive words of a man, but experience the demonstration of your spirit and your power, speaking to our hearts what it is you would say from this text that you inspired and gave to us. Bless your word, we ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I think probably one of the worst feelings is those occasions when you find yourself maybe forced to have to deal with something because you failed to prepare personally. Perhaps you have been in those occasions before. That fearful feeling comes over you when you're realizing that you are not ready or you're not prepared for what's about to happen. Maybe it was a test that you failed to adequately get ready for or just something that you should have taken forethought and preparation about and now you find yourself in the midst of something and you have to face it irregardless but you sense you're not ready and in that moment usually there's that sense of regret that comes over you because you kind of know that now you have to face whatever it is that you're facing and in some ways sometimes you're facing it because you didn't prepare and now you can't avoid it you can't escape it but you didn't adequately prepare for it. And I think certainly there is probably nowhere where that is more true than in the area of spiritual matters or eternal matters. Now, by the same token, it's a wonderful and relieving feeling on occasion in life as well. When you have properly prepared and you know that you adequately prepared with forethought and wisdom of what could come to pass or is going to come to pass, and you're able to avoid maybe some form of suffering that another had to go through. You're able to escape something because you were properly prepared for it. So you elude the struggle. And again, I think that is no doubt most rewarding as it pertains to spiritual matters in life. And it seems this topic of preparation is now Paul's concern by the spirit of God's leading as he continues to talk about this topic or this subject of the coming of Jesus Christ, the coming of the Lord Jesus. Again, contextually, it's important. We just concluded chapter four, where there in the end of the chapter, Paul was speaking about the blessed hope of the believer. The blessed hope of the believer, particularly as that pertained to how we will be quickly and instantaneously 
removed from this planet, caught up, the Bible says, to meet the Lord Jesus in the air, to go home to heaven to be with him, and to join together with other believers in Christ who have already died and have gone to be with the Lord. Again, if you look back in chapter 4, verse 16 and 17, it described it this way, saying, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first then we who are alive and remain that is on this planet shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord so this catching away of the saints the harpazo we mentioned often we use the term rapture to refer to this event where at any moment nothing left need to be done or fulfilled prior to this happening at a moment when unexpected at any moment instantaneously with force and an immediate experience believers will be snatched off this planet as jesus descends through the clouds calls us up to meet him together in the air. We're reunited with loved ones who've gone before us in Christ and we meet Jesus and get to go and be with the Lord in heaven. And in light of that, we notice that he says in verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. Use this as a source of comfort that at any moment you can be caught away from the suffering and the struggles of this life. The question comes to pass is this, as we think about this issue of the removal or the rapture of the church catching away Christians off this planet, the question is this, what happens after? What happens after this instantaneous, miraculous removal of millions of Christians from this planet? What transpires afterwards? Well, that ushers in this unique time period, which we just read of here in chapter 5, referred to as the Day of the Lord. And we'll see in verses 1 through 11 in chapter 5, regarding the Day of the Lord, we'll get, first of all, explanation about the Day of the Lord. And we'll also see here in this same set of verses, verses 1 through 11, some exhortations and challenges in light of that day of the Lord, particularly in verses 6 through 8, we'll see those exhortations in light of it. Now, we'll likely cover this in two parts, kind of focusing on the explanation aspect first, particularly this morning, some explanation about this day of the Lord. And then next time together, we'll talk about some of the exhortations of how we should then live in light of the reality of this experience that's going to come to pass. So Paul says, look, regarding the rapture, verse 18, that should be a source of comfort. Comfort each other with that understanding. Encourage each other as Christians. Christians that at any moment it can be all over and you'll be with Jesus out of this world together with him and your loved ones he then says chapter 5 verse 1 but just continuing with this thought but concerning the times and the seasons brethren you have no need he says that I should write to you so notice regarding dates and time frames in regards to when these things are going to happen and come to pass Paul says it's not necessary that I write to you regarding that you see what he says there in verse 1 look at the text concerning times and seasons two different Greek terms he uses there the word times is the word chronos where we get our English word chronology or chronological that is a reference to time on a clock or a day on a calendar. And then he uses the word seasons, which refers to a set period 
in time in human history. That's the term he uses there, a different word. And regarding such as it pertains to the coming of Jesus, he says there in verse 1 that there's really no need, he says, that I should write to you anything about this, the times and the seasons. Perhaps because Paul had already given to them sufficient teaching of how to discern the signs of the times and the indicators of the return of Jesus and therefore he felt no need to give further explanation. He had already been there pastoring and teaching the church for a short season. It also could be that perhaps because Paul did not want them to be overly concerned with focusing on trying to pinpoint dates and times on a calendar of exactly when this was going to come to pass which would make sense because Matthew 24 Jesus said but the day and the hour no one knows not even the angels of heaven but my father in heaven now what is interesting here this phrase verse 1 times and seasons is that same phrase or statement is actually used by Jesus as well Jesus used that statement or uh, let me say in a sense Jesus referred to describing what should be said in relation to that statement he didn't use it himself uh, but that same statement appears after Jesus's resurrection and prior to his ascension in Acts chapter 1 where there we read this Acts 1 it says therefore when they had come together they the disciples asked Jesus Lord will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel and Jesus said it's not for you to know here's the statement the times or the seasons which the father has put in his own authority but you shall receive power when the holy spirits come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in jerusalem judea samaria and to the ends of the earth so the disciples in their inquisitiveness much like you and i they wanted to be prophecy buffs like it seems many Christians are hyper concerned about being, understanding everything, got to wrap your mind around it. You know, we, we have to uh, 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 idolize our intellect so often. So we have got to know exactly how everything's going. So they said to Jesus, okay, Jesus, now you've died, you've resurrected. And, and so, okay, is this the kingdom time? Is this when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And instead of Jesus giving them a prophecy seminar for ninety nine ninety nine with all these incredible keynote speakers, him being the most famous one, Jesus said, look, here's my response to that. It's not for you to have to know the times and the seasons. The Father's got that under his authority. In other words, don't worry, God's authority with the timing is going to be perfect. He's got it under control. But what did he say? He said, but you, here's what you should focus on, you need to receive power the supernatural power of the Spirit of God to be witnesses for me on this planet so that you then can have an impact in Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, what Jesus was saying is it's not necessary for you to know every detail on the timing. What's necessary is that you know that the time is very limited, that there's limited time. And because there's limited time, Jesus said, become some who are spirit-filled in a way where you receive power to be a witness and to evangelize and to tell other people there's not an open-ended amount of time. There's limited time. And that we would be spirit-filled so that we can share the love and the truth of Christ with others around us. Well, Paul goes on, verse 2, to then say, for you yourselves know. So he says, I don't need to write regarding these things. 
You yourselves know, Paul says perfectly, that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. So he now brings up this subject, apparently, as I said, which they already knew about, it seems, to some thorough extent. And Paul now brings up this subject regarding the day of the Lord. Now that phrase there, you should circle it maybe, underline it in your Bible, because that's an important phrase in the Scripture. This phrase, the day of the Lord, it appears both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And first of all, let me say this, it does not refer to just a 24-hour day in the sense of when we often hear the word day. That phrase, the day of the Lord, speaks of a specific time period in human history. It's a time when the Lord, after a long time period of patient, gracious tolerance with the rejection of humanity, in a sense, brings a close or an end to what would be, you could say now, the day of man, a season of grace, that Jesus ultimately interrupts and overrules all humanity and finally has, if you would, his day. It's now his day. There's been a season of grace. There's been a day of man where the devil, the God of this age, has blinded and caused havoc on this planet. And ultimately, Jesus, after years and years and generations of patient tolerance with wickedness and immorality and people spitting in the face of God and mocking Christ and persecuting Christians, Jesus finally has his day where he exercises his right and his power and all of his authority that he claimed and possesses. And at a set time period, he brings to pass this day of the Lord, which includes multiple different events, multiple events in this time period where Jesus is uniquely working in specific ways. And it starts, it seems very clear from scripture, directly after the rapture, the removal of saints up into heaven to go and be with the Lord. There are many references, as I said, to this phrase, the day of the Lord in the Old and New Testament. If you're a note taker, just want to refer to some of them, a few of the places where it shows up in Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 13, uh, two, excuse me, and chapter 13, Ezekiel 30 refers to it. Uh, there's description regarding the day of the Lord in Joel's prophecy in chapters 1 and 2, Amos chapter 5, Zephaniah chapters 1 and 2 refer to this. Let me just read to you a, a sample or two to give you a reference of what the Bible says regarding the day of the Lord. Just listen, I'll read to you. Isaiah chapter 2 verses 10 and 12 describes it this way. Enter into the rock and hide from the dust from the terror of the Lord. And the glory of his majesty, the lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. The Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Listen to chapter 13 of Isaiah. It describes it this way, very picturesque and clear. It says, Wail. For the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp and every man's heart will melt and they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as in a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate he will destroy its sinners from it. 
For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened and it's going forth and the moon will cause its light to shine. And I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold, a man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore, I will shake the heavens and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. So we begin to see what this day of the Lord encompasses. In the New Testament, Jesus gives description of this in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. He talks about the events of this time. It's referred to in Acts 2 and in 2 Peter chapter 3, this day of the Lord. Many of the activities and events, if you want to look at them specifically, are recorded for us in the book of Revelation between chapters 6 and and chapters 20. In summary, the day of the Lord is a time period, as I said, that starts or begins, it seems, immediately after the removal of the saints, of Christians off of this planet, and will then include what we often refer to as the time period of the tribulation, a seven-year set period that will come to pass on this planet, also referred to in the Bible as the 70th week of Daniel, or the time of Jacob's trouble. It will involve the revealing, of course, of the Antichrist as he comes to the scene and takes his position of power as a one-world ruler. It will involve all the cataclysmic events and the judgments described, as I said, in the book of Revelation, chapter 6 through 18. It includes then the second coming of Christ together with all of his saints at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, the time of the battle of Armageddon, and when Jesus returns and actually comes back to the earth, touches down upon the Mount of Olives, it cleaves in two, and he goes up into Jerusalem and sets up his throne upon his earth. And then begins to rule and to reign as king of kings and lord of lords. And it does seem to include, many believe, even that thousand year reign of Christ upon the earth of what we often call the millennium or the time of the kingdom age. So the day of the Lord, it's a time period. It's a time period that encompasses multiple future events as we just described. And the primary purposes of that time, the day of the Lord, are, are, are really kind of threefold. Three basic reasons of the purpose for the day of the Lord. The first being this. Is it a time when God will uniquely work again among the nation of Israel as his chosen people to prepare them for meeting their Messiah for the second time? when they then will recognize that he is indeed the true Messiah that God sent to them, Zechariah says that they will mourn and grieve as they realize that they pierced and crucified the very Messiah that was sent to them as a second time Christ comes to them and God will uniquely be working among Israel, fulfilling a last of a seven-year period that Daniel 9 describes still needs to come to pass for the people of Israel. Secondly, another purpose of this time of the day of the Lord, of course, is to punish, you can hear from the texts I read, to punish the ungodly and to bring God's judgment on a Christ-rejecting world and then thirdly, of course, to grant Jesus his rightful rulership as the king of kings because it's now his day. 
And so he will exert his power and authority and rule as king of kings. Now, here we begin to get in these verses, I said, the Bible gives some description now about this particular period of time called the day of the Lord. Look with me there in verse 2 as he's describing it. He says, so the day of the Lord comes, verse 2, as a thief in the night. So there's what we call simile, a picture, a comparison of what the arrival or the onset of this event, this time period, the day of the Lord will be like. We read there it will be as or like, metaphorical, it will be as a thief in the night, inferring that it's going to come to pass with incredible surprise or shock. Uh, again, that's what happens when a thief breaks in or robs or accomplishes his purposes. A thief catches people off guard. He catches people by surprise, right? I'm sure if you have ever had someone unfortunately break into your home or you've had something stolen from you, thieves do not typically call in advance to make arrangements before they come, right? You don't, you, you just get a phone call, hi, this is your local Northfield burglar. I was wondering Friday evening, could you be out to dinner with the family? If I you want to leave the back door unlocked for me, and they don't—it's the element of surprise. That's how a thief operates. When a thief accomplishes what they do, they catch people off guard. Afterwards, oh my goodness, what happened? There's that shock and that sense of being caught off guard because you were caught unexpectedly. You didn't prepare. And you were unexpected in a sense that this was ever going to happen. And that's the idea the Bible says in an illustrative way of what it will be like when the day of the Lord comes to pass. It will catch people off guard. Because people are unprepared, not expecting it. People will be shocked and surprised. And they will find themselves sort of bewildered because they did not know until it was too late. And therefore, they're shocked as the experience happens and the entry of it brings such surprise. Interesting, Jesus said in Revelation 16, Behold, I am coming, he said himself, as a thief. If you read Matthew 24, you'll see there Jesus uses similar language there as well of his coming. You know, Jesus in Matthew 24 also described his coming much like what it would be like in the days of Noah. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 24. Jesus said there, But as the days of Noah were, many of us know that story, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also, Jesus said, will be the coming of of the Son of Man. So Jesus uses that comparison of the days of Noah. And he says, just like in the days of Noah, everyone will be totally preoccupied with everyday affairs. And there's this one voice saying, listen, we need to prepare. The Lord is coming. We deserve His judgment. His judgment is going to come to pass upon us because of our evil and our iniquity and, and the righteous wrath of God. Is, and and, and in that day, as in Noah's day, Jesus said people will be eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. The idea is it will be business as usual. 
People will have no sense that there's anything imminent coming or that anything is going to interrupt. The idea will be people will live business as usual because you know nothing new is coming. It's the same as it's always been and it's always going to continue that way and they'll be conducting their affairs as they always do because there's no sense of urgency. There's no sense that something is going to come to pass when then suddenly and unexpectedly Jesus will interrupt human history and will intervene in his return as this day of the Lord comes to pass with severe judgment. Peter, describing the last days, says that they will be characterized by self-indulgent living and scoffing of everything that's spiritually true. Peter in 2 Peter 3 says people will be walking according to their own lusts saying where is the promise of his coming? All things continue as they were from the beginning. Again, the Bible says this is one of the things that you can tell will characterize the last days. People will live completely self-absorbed, self-indulgent living, everybody living according to their own lust. Don't tell me what's right, what's wrong. I have a craving and I'm going to fulfill it. I want to live this way and I'm going to live this way. I don't care what it does to my family or anybody else. I want to live this way. I want to be with this person. I want to pursue this. I want to fulfill this. This is my desire. Don't tell me, don't give me this Victorian righteous. Get it. I want to live the way I want to live and give me my rights and legalize it. Self-indulgent living. And then what? The scoffing of everything that is true and righteous. The promise. Well, you've been saying this Jesus is going to come for how long since I've known you? Everything seems to go on every day to me, just the same. Yesterday's, today's, the day before, a week ago. I don't see anything changing. And there will be a scoffing, a mockery, a making fun of, belittling and criticizing more and more the things that are spiritually true. And it's in the midst of that period and that characterization, the Bible says, that like a thief, unexpectedly, the day of the Lord will break to pass, catching inhabitants of the world by surprise, suddenly and unexpectedly, and multitudes and multitudes will be caught unprepared. And I would be amiss not to say to you this morning, because I don't know the state of any one of your souls, do you know for certain that you are prepared? Not the person sitting next to you, not your spouse, not your parent, not your kid. Not anybody out there in that world. Do you know that you are prepared? And my second thing would be this. Have you made preparations? Because if you haven't made preparations, you're not prepared. That's why the Bible says to us, now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. Then say tomorrow. Today. Now is always the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. Paul goes on, verse 3, regarding the day of the Lord, saying, For when they say, notice, peace and safety, then, he says, sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. So notice, the day of the Lord is going to bring to pass upon the unsaved destruction from the Lord. And it says that this is something, it's unfolding destruction and punishment that is inescapable. Notice a couple things here with me from verse 3. Again, regarding the day of the Lord, we see that it begins with a false sense of peace and security. 
a false sense of peace and security. He says, verse 3, look at the text, that people will be saying peace and safety. In other words, the focus of conversation among humanity will be peace and safety. There will be, if you would, a circumstantial maybe shift among humanity and a great step that has been taken towards peace and safety, which is interesting, again, because we know from places like Daniel chapter 9 and Revelation chapter 6 and other passages that indicate to us that when the church is removed from this earth instantaneously and millions of people just disappear from the planet, that it is at that same time as the tribulation then begins that the Antichrist, 2 Thessalonians will talk about him, that the Antichrist will then come forward onto the scene as a world ruler and his top agenda will be peace and safety. It will be peace and safety. Again, if you could just think it through in your mind, imagine for just a moment, you don't need to watch an end times movie to pick this up. Imagine, if you would, the rapture. Imagine millions of people literally from all over this globe just instantaneously disappear from this planet. Mysteriously, they just disappear. Millions and millions of people. What panic and confusion would that bring globally? What destabilizing would that bring of economies and societies and the buzz and concern of human thought and conversation will be we need to get things under control before something worse happens. So therefore, we, look, we need to set aside all of our differences and do whatever we have got to do to unify for peaceful and safe human existence. Because what if something else happens? We have to rally together and as a result, what happens? The stage is perfectly set for the Antichrist to come to the forefront to take his part and his role and somehow the Bible says that he will make a peace covenant or peace treaty with the nation of Israel, even allowing them to rebuild their temple in such a way that he is able to issue and, and, and aware, hey, this will bring peace, it will bring stability. Finally, somebody can bring stability, quote unquote, to the Middle East. And it will cause all nations of the world to come together, the Bible says, to unify in a world government in a sense and countries will turn over their sovereign control of their own nations and turn their power over to him, to the beast. Thinking, hey, if this guy can do that and we need peace and safety because things are out of control and destabilized, he will provide a one world government, a one world economy, and no doubt it will all be sold and promoted as what? Essential for peace and safety for the global existence of humanity. And can I just say, just look at the scope of today's current generation. What is a top priority in many ways on an international level? I mean, look at our world, truth be told. The talk and the concern, what does a lot of it revolve around? We have radical terrorist groups that are doing chaotic and barbaric things. We have civil wars. We have failing economies. And what do all those kind of things contribute to? Instability. Just complete instability and therefore is a pressing need of maybe global unification would be just the best thing to restabilize everything. 
If any of us in any nation are going to survive, we need to globally unify our economies, our governments, our military. How else are we going to regain stability on this planet? How else are we going to bring in a sense of peaceful, stable environment? So again, we can see the indicators. We can see the stage being set, though many are unconscious of what's even going on for the realities of these things about to come to pass. So the Bible says here, when they say, or notice when the focus is upon peace and safety, verse 3, then, that's when, he says, sudden destruction comes upon them. So again, a defining mark of when this destructive wrath of God will come to pass on this planet. Notice that it will be when the focus is on peace and safety, but notice secondly, another definite part of this day of the Lord, the Bible says here, is it is a time, it says right there in verse 3, of sudden destruction. Again, it would be untruthful not to say this is a period of God's punishment. This is a period of God's judgment and devastation and wrath coming from God as recorded in the book of Revelation chapter 6 through 18. All those seal and trumpet and bold judgments being unleashed and poured out upon this planet and all of humanity that has been left behind suffering through those horrific experiences here on this planet. What's described there? Again, the diabolical rulership of the Antichrist as he shows his true colors and turns around and goes from being the most peaceful individual to the most wicked, vile human being, Satan incarnate, living the way that he will live when he once has power and a throne, the unleashing of a time of unrestrained violence and killing on this planet. The Bible describes bizarre disease and pestilence all over this planet, widespread death, economic collapse, devastation of crops and food sources where famine and starvation sets in like a time never before in human history. Great cataclysmic judgments in nature, earthquakes, 100-pound hailstones. Imagine one of those hitting you on the head. Falling from the sky upon humanity. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 24, there will be great tribulations such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time nor ever shall be. So notice, it is a time of sudden destruction. Verse 3 goes on to say, look at it there, as, again, here's another picture word, as it will be like labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. So again, this picture is the day of the Lord and now the Bible says, it will be a time when sudden destruction comes as, in the same way as a woman when she enters into labor pains who can't escape the labor process. Now again, I've watched, I emphasize the word watched, this process three times. And what happens when a woman begins to go into labor and then ultimately into transition? As those labor pains begin, they intensify with frequency, they intensify all the more with, with the force in which they come and it culminates in a delivery. And the reality is this, once those labor pains start, you cannot stop or escape the process. Sometimes, you know, even in the midst of that, a woman facing the trauma and difficulty of that may even want it to stop. That's it. I, I remember one of our children, my wife, at a moment having taken an oxygen mask and saying, that's it, I'm done with this, bring me home. I can't do that, honey. It started. We've got to go through with this. There is no escaping this now. What has happened has began and there is no way to elude the experience that has come to pass. We've got to walk through it. 
And the Bible says here, this is a picture of how it will be when people are caught in the midst of the powerful destruction from God Almighty coming upon this planet in the time of the tribulation as those judgments are happening, but there's no escape once it starts. Yet there will be a tremendous, tremendous yearning. People will want to escape it. They'll want to elude the horrible experiences, but it will be too late. There will be no way out. There will only be the horrific experience of going through it. Revelation 9 describes these locusts or scorpion-type creatures which are unleashed from the bottomless pit during that time. And listen to what the Bible says. It says regarding these locust scorpion-like creatures that are let out of a bottomless pit onto the earth to torment, it says they were not given authority to kill them, that's mankind, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. And in those days, listen, in those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. So imagine that. The torment of this experience and even having a desire to die. And in some way, the Bible says for a five on three, people will be doing everything they can to try and die, to try and end their own life. But in some way, they, it will they won't even be able to end it. Why? Because they can't escape it. It has to be dealt with and endured. Revelation chapter 6, I encourage you to read that there. It talks about great cataclysmic judgments coming upon this planet. And it says this, that the kings of the earth and great men, rich men, commanders, all those who were powerful, who could buy their way out of anything, they could talk their way out of anything because they had power and authority and position and money. And the Bible says those in that day hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks and the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? Now, please pay attention here. I want you to note the source of the wrath in that time of tribulation. Again, Jesus says that in this world, you will have tribulation. In a fallen world, there is a measure of tribulation that we all experience, trials and difficulties. But the tribulation specifically in that day of the tribulation, notice the source behind that tribulation on humanity. The Bible says again and again is the wrath of the Lamb. It is the wrath of God himself who is the source of, of that time of tribulation. Again, multiple times in the book of Revelation describing this, it says again and again, the wrath of the Lamb, the wrath of God. Now that's very important to understand that the source of that tribulation is from the Lord Himself. The reason why that's important is that is why one group can escape it and why another group will not be able to escape it. The ungodly, the unbelievers who have rejected Christ must experience that just wrath as a punishment from God. But yet those who have put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ can be excused from it because they believe that Jesus bore the wrath of God for them. So therefore God permits this allowance to escape when others cannot. If you didn't yet, also if you would, please notice the language change that happens here. 
Again, chapter 4, we read there as Paul talked about the removal of saints. He included himself, obviously, as a Christian. There in chapter 4, he said, We who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Now notice, look at verse 3 of chapter 5. Look at the pronouns. They change. For when they, not we, when they say peace and destruction, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. So Paul says, we Christians, including himself, will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. But he says, they say peace and safety when sudden destruction comes on them and they, he says, they will not be able to escape. He excludes himself as a believer and the Thessalonian believers as well. Again, but destruction comes upon them, that is, unbelievers the unsaved a different group of humanity and they will not escape the judgment why because they're not ready so they're left behind and as they're left behind on the planet they must then endure what is about to come to pass again they will not escape but again look at the language verse 4 and 5 they and them they won't escape but again he changes it but you but you Christian Brethren, that's a Christian term, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of the day. We, including himself as a fellow Christian, are not of the night nor of the darkness. So again, Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, who is giving to him the Word of God, draws a purposeful distinction right there in the text regarding himself as a believer and the believers of Thessalonica, emphasizing that what is coming upon them, the unsaved world, he says, is not going to come to pass on you, brethren. You won't be overtaken. Paul's saying, look, you and I spiritually are not scheduled for the same thing as they are because we're in a different spiritual condition. That's why he says there, you are not darkness, that is spiritually living in the dark. We are not of the night, but we're sons and children of the day and of the light. Again, this is common language the Bible uses to picture good and evil, or sin and righteousness, this idea of light and darkness. The Bible says God is light, and in him, what? There's no darkness at all. So we see this throughout the scripture. There's this contrast of spiritual light and spiritual darkness. It typifies the difference here between God's children and those who are not God's children because they are still living in the dark. Ephesians 5 says to the Christian, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. Colossians 1 says he's delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his son. Peter, writing 1 Peter 2.9, says he's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Again, what's Paul doing? He's making a clear distinction. He's drawing a clear distinction here purposefully with the pronouns and how it relates to who will experience the day of the Lord and the wrath of God and who will escape the day of the Lord and the wrath of God. Now, verses 6 to 8, as I said, which we're going to look at together next time, give that exhortation of how we should live as Christians in light of the reality that these closing days are coming. But glance ahead before we close down to verse 9 and 10. Because here you get further emphasis of this point that the Christian 
and the church as a whole will be excused or removed from this wrath of God that comes during the tribulation. Again, can I emphasize? Note the pronouns with me. Look what he says, verse 9. For God did not appoint Paul writing us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Notice, we as a believer do not have an appointment with wrath. Now, we once did initially, and we should never forget that. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were all because of sin under the wrath of God, and that's what we once deserved. We were once destined for the wrath of God because we are sinners as well. But here's the key. We believe Jesus answered and took that appointment for us. That's why Paul says, verse 10 there, when Jesus died for us. See, God poured out all of his wrath upon Jesus who bore it for us completely so that we could escape the just wrath of God that we deserve. Now, therefore, there is no logical, and I emphasize the word, and you're free to disagree. There is no logical reason for God to pour out the same wrath upon a Christian, a believer in Christ, once again. To me, that would be indicating if I have to go through the tribulation and experience what is the wrath of God in that time, that would indicate to me that what Jesus did, you're telling me, is not sufficient. And I don't ever want to stand and say that. What Jesus did on the cross wasn't sufficient for me. It was pretty good, but I got a, I got a little more wrath that I need to take a spanking for first. To me, it would contradict the good, righteous nature of a God himself who punished his son and told us that you are promised that you will escape my punishment because my son bore it for you and took it away, that'd be God contradicting his nature. That's why he says here, we are not appointed to wrath but to obtain salvation. Here's the bottom line. Our appointment with wrath has been canceled. It's been canceled because Jesus answered it for us and we've been rebooked on a different eternal destination which is to obtain the full salvation of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said in chapter 1, as believers, we are waiting for Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Look, I'm not looking for the Antichrist. I'm looking for Jesus Christ. Maybe he's alive. I don't really care. I'm not looking for him. I don't plan on being here when he shows up. I'm looking for Jesus Christ to deliver me from the wrath to come. It is the unbeliever who rejects Christ that is still under the wrath of God for their sin. John 3 says that those who don't believe in Jesus, the wrath of God remains on them. And this morning, if you have not yet turned your heart to Jesus Christ personally, and you have not sincerely yourself made preparation spiritually and eternally, listen, you need to realize you have an appointment with the wrath of God beginning in the tribulation and culminating in hell. And the only way of escape is to ask Jesus to save you now. While there's still time, while there is still opportunity, today he's here and you can have an appointment with him before you leave by calling upon the name of the Lord for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, the Bible says, in faith shall be saved. And as a believer, let me say this this morning. I know sometimes life is hard. 
And it's difficult. And there are burdens and there are disappointments. And there are trials and difficulties we walk through in this fallen world. But I tell you this. Understanding that I have been delivered from the wrath of God always gives me something as an anchor still to rejoice in and to celebrate and gives me a good reason that God, no matter what my life is experiencing, you're worthy of my worship and I will serve you faithfully. Let's stand together. Let's pray.